This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. It rarely happens in the wake of a school shooting, but it's happening in Michigan. The parents of a 15-year-old accused of killing four classmates earlier this week have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. And now police are looking for them. We'll get details of the charges and ask about the chances the parents could be convicted. Here in Los Angeles, apparently being charged with committing violent smash and grab robberies isn't enough to keep you in jail. 14 people arrested, 14 people released. And the next time you see a cute cat video on the web, beware. It may be taking you down a conspiracy theory wormhole. An early characteristic of the new Omicron variant, a potentially high reinfection rate. We'll talk about that. New York City could make history next week by becoming the first city in the country to allow non-U.S. citizens to vote in local elections. And then we've been hearing the warnings of Christmas tree shortages. Is the Grinch going to make off with yours? We start with criminal charges for the parents of an accused high school shooter. Allison Anderman is senior counsel at the Giffords Law Center. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So this is very unusual. And uh, what's the legal grounds for the charges against the parents? Well, I don't know how unusual this is. I've certainly heard that being repeated in the news, but... Um, This is a very rare set of circumstances. Um, School shootings like this that involve, frankly, white students who are unrelated um, and have mass casualties are extremely rare in this country, and and especially ones that make um, national headlines. There are many more shootings that occur at schools than make these headlines, and they aren't reported on. So we don't actually know whether prosecutors do charge parents in those cases. I do know that Mike Fuhrer, who's the city attorney in LA, has prosecuted parents for violating um, the safe storage law that is an ordinance in LA. Yeah, when we're going after parents here, is it because maybe if somebody is giving a firearm to a minor or is it the free access like you don't have it locked up because if there's laws saying it's got to be in a lockbox somewhere and kid gets their hands on it, well, then, you know, you start to look to the parents. Yeah, there are different iterations of these laws. Um, Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles has a law that requires um, that gun owners store their guns in a safe manner. And the intent of that is to prevent access by minors and other prohibited people. The state of California, however, has what we call a child access prevention law that makes parents or other adults criminally liable for allowing a gun to be accessible to a minor. And these laws um, exist in you know, different forms and different strengths around the country. There are about 30 states that have some iteration of these child access prevention laws. Unfortunately, Michigan is not one of them. So it seems as though um, prosecutors are going after the parents um, using involuntary manslaughter. Um, Now, would they have done that even if Michigan had a child access prevention law? Possibly. The facts of this case are pretty unusual and may have risen to um, justify that charge. So, Allison, then, uh, if I understand what you're saying, it it isn't so much the charging of the parents that's uh, somewhat unusual. It's the, the nature of the charge on involuntary manslaughter. Is that it? Yes, I mean, that's how I see it. Now, again, it may be unusual to charge parents in 
situations where their minors get a hold of a gun. But I think this particular set of circumstances where a, a white student took a gun to school and murdered intentionally um, four of his white classmates is what is unusual. Um, let's not forget that black and brown minors are murdered with guns every day in our communities. And so the, the circumstances in and of themselves are unusual. And yes, charging the parents with involuntary manslaughter is um, it, highly unusual, I think. Okay, and, and, and the sort of second part of my question, Allison, is charging and convicting, of course, as you know, two different things. Do we know what the success rate is when parents are charged? Well, again, we don't know how many parents are charged. There's no, you know, there's no national um, tracking of this information. So I, I don't know. Um, and even if, if there were, um, you know, again, these facts are so unusual, much more common, I believe, are when parents are charged in a situation where um, one of their children gets a hold of the gun in the home and uses it to shoot themselves or a sibling or takes it to school and, and nothing ever happens. Allison Anderman, senior counsel at the Giffords Law Center. Allison, thanks. Okay, so closer to home, how did 14 people charged with carrying out violent smash-and-grab robberies in the L.A. area manage to get arrested and not spend time in jail? This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, you're going to be able to find that Christmas tree of your dreams this month. Or will COVID and climate change and the supply chain, uh, chan, supply chain <laughs> triple threat stand in your way? Uh, before that, COVID reinfections, those could soon jump if this uh, Omicron variant takes off. Right now, though, 14 people arrested in connection with a string of high-profile smash-and-grab robberies at retail stores. And almost as soon as they were arrested, they were released back onto the streets. That's in spite of these robberies counting... Uh, Robbers counting as serious felonies and few of the suspects, few of the suspects having criminal records. So the question is, how does this happen? Michael Moore is chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. Chief Moore, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. So, uh, as we said in the in the setup, Chief, uh, I mean, you know, the police department did what the police department's supposed to do, did it pretty quickly, got all these uh, suspects arrested, and people are going, how come they're not in jail? How come they're not in jail? Well, a number of them are not in jail because of the efforts within, during the COVID crisis to downsize our uh, custody settings so that uh, individuals being held for uh, criminal offenses would not be subjected to uh, COVID and, and potentially die. And while the initial days of this emergency, that was well intended, the consequence of it is, is that a person now arrested for burglary, a person arrested for auto theft and other serious crimes, uh, face a zero bail situation where essentially we take them to custody. Or first of all, we have to find them. We capture them. We bring them into custody. We book and process them. And rather than being held for an arraignment that would be within 72 hours and the judge would determine what the appropriate bail is and a standardized bail would apply otherwise, uh, they're placed with a zero bail, which means they're actually going out the door and released back in the community before the officer has a report completed. And this has been going on now for a year and a half or so. And, and, and we've talked about it in the past, but I think that the culminating effect of how that has built up over time is that there's individuals in the community today that look at that as a lack of consequences, a lack of deterrence, and an open season in which to go out and commit 
uh, these type of crimes that we saw where uh, people are breaking into Nordstrom's there in the in the Melrose area of Mid Wilshire and stealing thousands of dollars of merchandise. We uh, our officers are there. They they pick up this, the uh, individuals. One of the caravan cars they chase in a in a dangerous high speed pursuit, and three individuals are arrested. One was a juvenile released to his parents, but the other two uh, adults with prior criminal felonious histories are on a zero bail. And while we can attempt to get bail diversions and do, oftentimes they then go to an arraignment within 72 hours and are released by the judge on a zero bail. And so that's what we're trying to bring attention to is that the crisis during COVID, while well-intended and the impact it had on the criminal justice system was significant and uh, and severe that it's developing another crisis in the public safety, and that is a perception by those that the few that are out there, and the vast majority of people are law-abiding, but we have an offender base that commits and are willing to commit uh, serious and, and violent crimes, and we need to make sure that the criminal justice system acts as a deterrent uh, to them, as well as holds those people out of a community setting to protect the people from being further victimized. And I'll close by this by saying one of the attributes that I met this morning in speaking with uh, I'm sorry, in speaking with District Attorney George Gascon about, and he agreed to work with me on, is that today when we book a person on a zero bail, they're not scheduled for an arraignment for months into the future. And that, again, means that this person continues to be in the community setting, and not only are they talking with others and saying, well, this is a consequence of what happens, which is none, in my view, uh, until much later, which uh, puts the community at risk, it sets a scenario with others feel that this is uh, open season. Yeah. This is an opportunity. They can go do it, too. Uh, so how do we switch this back? Because uh, I think you're saying it's high time, if I'm reading what you're saying correctly. Uh, and we can look out the window and we know that, I mean, L.A.'s open, so the jails can be, you know, fuller again. Well, what I'm looking to do is, you know, the criminal justice system is constantly evolving and changing to the to society and, and its needs just as, as all other parts of our of our society are. And again, my in talking with the district attorney who, who recognizes and, and agrees that chronic offenders, you know, need to be out of a community setting, there's individuals that are just unwilling or unable to be rehabilitated, is that we've got to look at this more seriously and see that the culminating effect of this of this COVID pandemic has been has had uh, one of the unintended consequences is an increased perception in our communities that people can go out and commit serious crimes and that there'll be a lack of consequences. Our officers have faced this for for months and they've uh, they've made their voices heard and, and I have as well and others. But now that we see this actually now manifesting itself not just in uh, some of our most impacted areas historically impacted areas of the city. But now some of our shopping centers and retail outlets and our more affluent areas of the city, I think that there's people who are now making a call for action that maybe six months or a year ago were, were not paying attention or, or not necessarily uh, bringing this, uh, this issue with uh, as much importance as it is today. Yeah, frustrated, right? Michael Moore, chief of the uh, LAPD. Chief, thanks. Okay, that cat video, you know, the one that looks like really adorable, and then you click on it, well, you may just find yourself reading about anti-vax conspiracy theories. We'll explain that next. Oh, there it is. We'll play that one, or this one. 
Back and forth. You, <laughs> it's a live can, radio show. Yes, people can choose the music <laughs> yes. they want it's to like hear. It's like those choose-your-own-adventure books. Uh, this is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Uh, later on in the show, uh, you've likely heard about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Several square miles of mostly plastics floating in the middle of the ocean, but... There are apparently whole ecosystems sprouting up on that garbage. Before that, non-U.S. citizens could soon be allowed to vote in local elections in New York City. We will go to New York and find out why. Now, cats and disinformation. So the cute cat video you're about to click on, uh, Google or Facebook, um, could be a portal into a world of conspiracy theories and extremist groups. We're going to explain this one because we promised we would. Uh, Groups ranging from anti-vaxxers to right-wing militant organizations, they're increasingly using cute animal videos to lure people into their worlds. Melissa Ryan, CEO and chief strategist of the digital consultancy Card Strategies. Melissa, thanks for being with us. So the cute animal video, the cat or the puppy, is the lure. How do people fall? into the trap? Well, the thing about tech platforms is their business model is engagement. So they want you spending as much time on the platform as possible. Uh, They want you uh, clicking and liking things and showing your interests. Uh, Bad actors uh, who spread conspiracies and disinformation game this system in the same way. Uh, So they know that uh, hate speech and incendiary content keeps people going and keeps people coming to them. But the platforms are starting to crack down on that. So they're having to find new tactics. And one of the tactics that they found is benign engagement bait, things like cat videos, uh, cat pictures, cute images. So you click on the page that showed you the cute cat video and you have no idea that what it actually is, is a site for disinformation and conspiracy theories. And do we know who's behind that disinformation? Uh, The New York Times article uh, that uh, had news on it this week uh, really focused on the Epic Times, uh, which is a a well-known propaganda outlet that's been spreading uh, propaganda in the United States. Interestingly, they're actually a a, a dissident cult in China. Uh, And most people who read any of their content, whether it's cat videos or anti-vax conspiracies, have no idea uh, that this is actually disinformation originating from another country and a, a, a cult. Sometimes you see the same video posted like on a bunch of different platforms because, oh, everyone loves this dog doing this funny thing. Uh, Do they either like license those or just take them and repost them because they know that they work? And then that's why they use them because, oh, it's gotten 20,000 likes over here. I'm going to post this, too. And then in the bio, I'm going to put my link to my website. And uh, wow, what you're going to see when you get there. Uh, I am sure they steal it uh, because, again, these are bad actors. So uh, worrying about things like copyright and, and trademark are probably not yeah, who cares, right? <laughs> right. And, and and to be clear, right, it, it isn't the the pictures of the cute little cats uh, that that uh, have this material. It's the links that are encoded in them that you have to click on, right? Well, it's that you you see the cute cat video and yeah. you're like, oh, I want more cute cat videos. So I'm going to like the page that showed me the cute cat video. And then all of a sudden you're getting all this conspiracy and extremist content from the same page, which is not why you signed up. You signed up because you wanted more cat videos. So it'll just show up in your feed from whoever yeah. you're following now because of the cats and dogs. Now they're showing you all this other stuff. And then you're like, where did this come from? Or maybe you go, oh, I'm interested in this. And, you know, you shouldn't be. Yeah, and it's it's not a new strategy. I mean, we saw for years uh, pro-veteran content and uh, other kinds of benign engagement content uh, would be interspersed with with hate speech and incendiary content. But this is the first time I've heard of you know cute animal videos being looped in. All right, Melissa Ryan, CEO and chief strategist of the digital consultancy Card Strategies.
You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The scientists in South Africa in the early studies of people infected with Omicron are uh, finding that this new variant of COVID is at least uh, three times as likely to cause reinfections in people. Uh, the new mutation found in Omicron mutations uh, seems to make it easier for the virus to evade immunity built up from prior infections, uh, and that would include Delta. Now, the uh, property of Omicron could make it, this property could make it much easier, faster to spread around the world. Dr. Syra Madad is senior director of the Special Pathogens Program for the New York City Hospitals System, and she was featured in the Netflix documentary, Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Well, how do we prevent an outbreak of Omicron, or is it too late? Well, uh, oh, there's, there's a few things. First, uh, there is widespread transmission of this variant. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't control it. We have the tools uh, to mitigate and reduce the impact. Now, can we eliminate the threat um, of this variant? That is highly unlikely, just like we're not going to be able to eliminate COVID-19. It's, it's one of those, it's, it's a virus uh, that's going to be with us in perpetuity, but we'll learn to live with it. Right now, we're still in the emergency or acute phase of the pandemic where we're seeing, you know, thousands of new infections, thousands of new hospitalizations, and over a thousand deaths per day. That's still in the emergency phase. There's still a lot to learn about the Omicron variant. Right now, the preliminary information that is coming out of South Africa and some additional countries is showing that this potentially seems much more transmissible. It's un- it's unclear how much more transmissible this may be compared to Delta. If it's going to outcompete Delta in countries that have um, the Delta as a dominant variant, like here in the United States, we're unclear whether this is going to cause more severe illness, uh, as well as what this means in terms of our COVID-19 vaccines. But I will say that as we look at all other previous variants that have come before Omicron, all of them have impacted COVID-19 vaccines to a certain extent, but they haven't rendered them useless. We, our human uh, immune systems are so complex and there's multiple layers to it. So in the end, I think that this current variant may chip away a little bit at vaccine efficacy, but it's not going to completely, you know, make it useless. We'll still have protection. We may have less protection against infection, but we still have robust infection against severe disease and illness. But again, we'll need more data to back this up. Okay, so let's take that last portion. We'll put that aside and say, uh, let's hope for the best when it comes to the vaccines. And then we'll look at the prior infection and then reinfection. How big a deal is that if this can go back and infect people who maybe have had Delta uh, and get this again? Because, you know, we've got the three-pronged approach, right? We've got the vaccines, we've got all the measures, the masking and the distancing that we're hopefully still doing. And then there's a bunch of people around the world that are relying kind of on this, I had it, I'm going to be fine at least for a while. If that gets stripped away, is that a big problem? It is a big problem. And I think it just reemphasizes the need to ensure that we're vaccinating all populations. Uh, You know, everybody often thinks that natural immunity or infection induced immunity, um, you know, is superior. And we're learning more and more as these new variants come into play, that um, that is certainly, uh, you know, a, it's a wild card. And they may, you know, natural immunity may not provide as robust or, um, you know, as durable of immunity as vaccine induced. So I think it's just, you know, harping on the same message we've been saying over the past months is that we want to make sure that you have vaccination through vaccination. And that gives you much more uh, predictability, durability. Um, and you're able to, we're able to further, you know, say that, uh, you know, you, you can be protected. It's very unclear with natural infection. 
It, do medical folks such as yourself care hardly at all uh, about people getting infected? And by that I mean that just the mere fact that somebody is infected with a, with a variant, this one or any other one, uh, and tests positive on a test or maybe has you know some sniffles at home, that's not a big deal, is it? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because when we look at you know illness, there's a spectrum, right? So when we talk about infection, you can have mild infection, you can have moderate infection, you can have severe infection leading to disease. Now, what we learned about COVID-19, even those that are fully vaccinated, if they experience a breakthrough infection, meaning you've been exposed to the virus and you've come down and you become infected, um, you still have the potential for long COVID, right? And it does reduce your risk of long COVID in half. And long COVID is no joke, right? If you ask people, oh, nearly 50% of those that actually get infected have long COVID have, have at least, you know, one sign or symptom, um, you know, it's, it's no joke. You know, people have debilitating illness and they're not able to go back to work. Um, you know, it has a, an effect on the quality of life. And so, you know, when we look at infection, do breakthrough um, infections matter? They do matter if it's going to affect quality of life. And that varies from person to person. So the bottom line is we don't want anybody uh, experiencing illness because that's not, that's not convenient and no one wants to be sick. Dr. Syra Madad, Senior Director, the Special Pathogens Program for the New York City Hospital System. Thank you. Coming up, New York City residents who are not American citizens could soon have the right to vote in local elections. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. There are estimated to be about 800,000 residents of New York City who are not U.S. citizens. And if next week a new law is approved by the city council and signed by Mayor Bill de Blasio, as it is expected to be, all of those non-citizens could be allowed to vote in local elections. There are a handful of small towns that allow this, but obviously New York City would become far and away the biggest city in the country to give voting rights to non-citizens. With us is Idonis Rodriguez, a New York City councilman representing the Washington Heights neighborhood, and he is the author of this bill that would allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. Councilman, first off, thanks for being here. Second, for people who hear that sentence and go, uh, what, how, and why, uh, take us through it. First of all, thank you. It is, you know, a great honor to be part of what I believe is going to be a movement that such as in 1919 granted the right for women to vote in elections here in New York City. We will be granting the right of close to 1 million New Yorkers that have green cards, working paper, or working permit to vote in local elections to be able to decide who are the mayors, a council member, borough president, controller, public advocate. And we believe that it is time for us to restore something that individual has the right to, the right for 200 years ago where it was not a requirement to be a citizen to vote in local elections. Okay, but uh, Councilman, as I'm sure you know, there are people who are going to be looking at this in New York City and saying, wait a minute, uh, one of the perks, if you will, of being a citizen is the right to vote. And if you give that right to somebody who is not a citizen, even if they're working and they're living here legally and they're paying taxes, but if you give that perk to somebody who is not a citizen, then it diminishes the stature of somebody who is. And I will argue that that's not the case. I can argue that my soul came here with a green card and from 1983 to 2000, 
I came as Lee Manuel say, immigrant get the job done. I came to provide cheap labor. I came to work in a factory to be a delivery taxi. But I was a student organizer where when we persuaded the governor, the, the governor at the time, and Mario Cuomo not to increase tuition and cut the budget. And I also was a teacher from 93 to 2000. So I did the same contribution before being a citizen that I had done after the 2000 when I became a citizen. So there's a lot of New Yorkers that they were the one who stayed here during COVID, uh, working in factory, fast food workers, working in supermarkets. They were the one who stayed in New York City when a lot of wealthy New Yorkers, they left to the hometown, the Hobson Valley. So uh, we believe that this is a political decision to be a role model to, uh, for the whole nation at a time when a lot of conservative sectors in other places, Texas and others, they are restricting the voting rights. We are saying in New York City, we work on everyone. And when someone is able to vote after having green cards, then those people will experience what it is to be paying taxes by also electing the leaders. And we know that that also will motivate those groups or close to 1 million New Yorkers to also work harder to become citizens. The grounds and the standing to actually do this, where does it come from? Because even the mayor there, uh, Bill Blasio, has some reservations because he says that he thinks it's only the state lawmakers that could pass something like this. Well, the, the federal law already established that in order to vote for members of the House of Representatives, Senator, President, Vice President, individuals must be citizens. But the federal law already said that the state and the cities are the one that have the right to decide who voted in that election. That's why there's some town in Maryland that since the 1990s, they've been allowing individuals to vote with green card. That's why also in Vermont, last year also, recently it also was approved to allow individuals to vote in local election day, even though they were the citizen. And that's why from San Francisco to other places throughout the whole nation, there's an effort to restore. We have to understand that when we had our, our constitution, only white male who own land were allowed to vote. So we are confident that we are writing a new chapter by expanding voting rights. And again, the bill that we age, that we will be voting on December 9th, it, it is a result of participation of the law department of the of the mayor's office legislation division right. or the council okay. and, and, and our circle. All right. But let me let me ask you this, Council, because uh, I want to see if we can follow your argument a little farther. Um, federal law notwithstanding, is it your belief that a non-citizen should also be able to vote in state elections and federal elections? And why not? No, I'm focusing right now. At the no, I know, I know you're focusing. No, I know you're focusing on that. But I'm, but I'm asking, if, if if you're saying that somebody who lives in New York City, whether they're a citizen or not, should be able to vote for the leadership of New York City, well, they're also, of course, living in New York State and they're living in the United States of America. By your argument, should they be allowed to also vote for state senators for the president of the United States? No, I, 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 it's no, it's not me who is saying that. No, I'm, it's I'm asking that, you. No, I know that. I'm no, asking I you, Councilman. What I say, I'm not the one who is saying. It's a federal law who's granted the power to states and city, and we, as legislators, 
or the city council, we say, well, our mandate is to make New York City law. We are not mandating New York, New York State law. So I'm focusing right now, uh, working together with my 51 colleagues at the council, with the support of the speaker, the Immigration Coalition, the New York State NWACP, the House of Joseph, led by Reverend Sharkin, okay. more than saying New York City had the right and we will restore the right. So we are not focusing at the state or the federal level. We just believe that we, with the mandate that we have, being local legislators, have the right to pass this bill and we will pass it next week. Adonis Rodriguez, New York City Councilman, of represents uh, Washington Heights, author of the bill. 51 council members out there. They got a lot. Got a lot. Big city. That's right. All right. More in depth to come. A lot more show. Well, half an hour. We'll get you that on the way. And we're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. December is here. We just discovered this. <laughs> December is here, which means... It usually takes us a few days <laughs> yeah, to rise up to things. So it's the third, you know. Yeah, so it's it's December, and we've, we figured that one out. It means it's time for soon uh, singing carols and drinking hot cocoa and maybe purchasing a holiday Christmas tree. But with supply chain shortages and the onslaught of destructive fire seasons up and down the West Coast, many Christmas tree farmers are claiming that harvesting they are cl- uh, harvesting fewer trees this year. And we've seen the headlines, right? Christmas yes. tree shortage. shortage. They say, they say, oh, Christmas tree, no Christmas tree. Oh, I thought you were about to go into a song. Well, I yeah. <laughs> you said, changed oh, the lyrics tree. there. Oh, okay. uh, Tim O'Connor, executive director of the National Christmas Tree Association, is with us. Tim, can you help us set the record straight? Do we or do we not have a Christmas tree shortage? Well, I'm happy to set the record straight. We certainly do not. And there will be enough Christmas trees for everyone who wants to get one. So why, uh, why are there headlines <laughs> all over the happen? place? Yeah, well, why are there headlines all over the place that say you know Christmas tree shortage? Why? Well, the simple answer is everybody in the media business wants a Christmas tree story, and the idea of a sensational headline is the most desirable. So shortages have been the headlines for six years in a row now. And for six years in a row, we have never, ever, ever run out of Christmas trees. We always hear, okay, you know, they take a long time to grow, years and years, and and during the Great Recession, we didn't plant as many, so now here we are. But even with that, there's still enough? Yeah, the industry did have all those factors uh, to deal with, yet uh, there are enough trees. Prior to the recession, there were way too many trees and growers were unprofitable. There were more trees than there were buyers and that trees were sold at a loss in price. People got out of the business, people planted fewer trees, but we have plenty of trees available uh, for the market. The impact of the weather and the fires, while it has been serious for some individual growers, uh, it really hasn't reduced the total number of trees available nationwide substantially because trees are grown in other places. And even in Oregon, the number one producing state, the growers there tell us it's only about a 10% reduction in the trees coming from that state. Okay, but what about transporting those trees? So we have enough trees growing, but what about getting them from point A to point B? Well, the situation there is a little different. Certainly trucking uh, is going to cost more. Uh, you know, For those people who are in the business of buying trees that are pre-cut and having them 
brought to their tree lot or their store, they had to pay more to get them trucked. But the reality is uh, that that is how the wholesale Christmas tree business is done. That's how it's been done for years and years. And those are long-standing trucking company relationships. And to be honest, also, uh, our phone rings almost every day with trucking companies saying, we'd like to truck Christmas trees. Can you give us some loads? Do, so while the headlines say there's shortages, the reality is different. Do people go after, you think, certain kinds of trees? Like, oh, I like this one and I know. Or do most people just go to the lot and then they take what's there because they say, this one's nice and there's no patch at the back of it that's missing branches. I'll take this one. And then they're going to be fine because they're not looking for something specific. Well, I think there's some of both. There are trees that, you know, people fall in love with a certain type of tree and they want to find that one every year. And then there are folks who go shopping and see what they can find and, you know, pick the one they love on that day. So it's a, it is a little bit of both. And depending on where you live, obviously you're in California, you're not going to see the trees that are grown in the Eastern part of the U S there are different varieties of trees that grow in those conditions. And those are sold in the Eastern part of the country. So you'll see the trees that are available in the Western part of the country, primarily. Now, Tim, you know, uh, Mike here has a thing every year. He gets a specific kind of tree. Yeah, called a rescue tree. I look for like a little sad Charlie Brown one. Yeah. And then I take right. that. Last year's was in a puddle next to a dumpster. Oh. <laughs> he turned oh. out great. <laughs> are there many well, people, are there many people, Tim, like Mike? Oh, <laughs> well, there's always that. You know, what we say is there's a tree for everyone. And so, you know, if, if you want to rescue a tree and, and, and love a Charlie Brown tree, good for you. Somebody needs to do that and makes your Christmas that much better. Here I am, right? And you can just cover up the patches with lights and ornaments and garland. Uh, Tim O'Connor, Executive Director of the National Christmas Tree Association. I like that. Mike, Mike Simpson, the great rescuer of Christmas trees. Yes, listen. That one over there, the sad looking one. Uh, okay, but the main the main headline is if you if you <laughs> read a, a headline that says there's a shortage of Christmas trees, don't believe uh, it because there isn't. There's one. probably a car going by you with one on the roof right now. Right. When we come back, how coastal species are crossing the Pacific Ocean like they never have before. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So you're not supposed to find crabs and mussels and barnacles floating around in the middle of the ocean. They usually stick, you know, to the shore. And yet take a trip into the middle of the Pacific where we have the big garbage patch, right? The yeah. Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Uh, it's all clumped together. It's like 1.6 million square kilometers uh, too much. And you're going to find entire ecosystems that aren't really supposed to be there. Uh, bottles and debris that essentially act as little plastic rafts. They've carried shore-dwelling creatures deep into the Pacific. And now new research shows this could have all kinds of long-lasting environmental consequences. Joining us now is Jim Carlton, Professor Emeritus of Marine Sciences at Williams College, and he's also co-author of the research on the garbage patches ecosystem. Jim, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. So uh, the, the picture that uh, Mike just painted sounds, for these poor little creatures, very dire. Actually, it's an interesting question because uh, what we're finding is that a lot of these coastal species are thriving out um, uh, in the garbage patch, uh, totally unexpected. We know that they passed through on rafts for a long time, but what we've discovered 
is that they're actually colonizing that plastic out there and establishing uh, unexpectedly entirely new homes. So first off, though, they, they shouldn't be living there. You know, they're not meant to be living on a garbage patch. Uh, but second, how are they living out there on the garbage patch? You know, it's because of the plastic. Um, uh, we thought these coastal species could not survive in the open ocean. Um, and that's what I told my students for many years. But in fact, it turns out they were simply habitat limited. Now that we've inserted literally millions and tens of millions of pieces of plastic out there, it's a new substrate, it's a new habitat, and it turns out these coastal species can live out there if they had the proper permanent habitat. So wait a minute, so, so it almost sounds as if it's a good thing having all this plastic floating around in the ocean. Well, it's good for those species, but it's not good because we have now actually led to the invasion of non-native species into the one of the last habitats that we thought was untouched. We know that we have species invasions on rocky shores and tide pools, ports and harbors, but we had no evidence that we could actually, by human activity, in, introduce non-native species into the open ocean, and it appears that we've done that now. And do we know if they're competing and if that's bad for who's, you know, supposed to be living there? There are a lot of native species out there, and the next questions are, what are they doing out there? Are they competitors? Are they predators? Are they displacing or replacing some of the native species? And that really is the next step. Basically, what we've just discovered is that they're out there, they're reproducing, and that really is just jaw-dropping. And sort of a weird question, I suppose, but but as they keep reproducing and they're accustomed eventually to living in this environment, and yet we're trying to cut down dramatically the amount of plastic being dumped into the ocean, then what happens to them once they're used to being out there? You know, um, the, the sad part is um, it looks like the amount of plastic that's going into the ocean is increasing. So um, uh, they're not at risk of losing their plastic boats, their plastic rafts anytime soon. In fact, what we're guessing is that this will only expand uh, in the near future and be more coastal species that are able to live out there. We thought they couldn't find any food out there and that they couldn't live out there in a physiological sense, but it turns out they can. So they're just basically using it like its own little island or new garbage continent and just they've taken over and they're just gonna live there like it's the shore. Exactly, exactly. And that really um, is one of the great surprises to us because we thought they weren't adapted to the life and the conditions of the high seas, the open ocean. But then again, what we've done is add a substrate that was historically absent. Does this change uh, as years go by? Are they likely to evolve into a, into a somewhat different type of, of creature than the ones that are still stuck at, you know, near the shore? That's a really good question. Um, uh, we expect there will be some kind of level of adaptation to new food resources, uh, to the rather unique environment of the open ocean, the amount of ultraviolet and so on. So we would expect some adaptation over the long term, um, not evolving into new species exactly, but certainly we could see some what we call adaptive shifts, absolutely. Every once in a while, we get, you know, some story going by every every few years or so. Hey, here's a new idea of how to clean this thing up. And, and there's a scientist over here or entrepreneur over here, and they're going to deploy rafts and all this. Has any of that gone anywhere? There are lots of attempts to kind of clean up the, the plastic of the ocean um, and, and a fair amount of debate about that. Um, but as much as we clean up and put, put our efforts into that end, the, the, real, the real fundamental question is stopping uh, what we call the continental supply pathway. We've got to stop all this stuff from getting into the oceans because cleaning it up is really just a temporary measure if it keeps coming in. 
these creatures, crabs, mussels, uh, you know, these are these are things that people eat, right? Uh, is there is there a difference in the quality of you know food for humans? based on whether or not you're consuming a crab from a shoreline or a crab that grew up and made a home of a plastic boat? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, uh, um, what we are concerned about is that um, uh, the species out there are, might be consuming an awful lot of microplastic, little tiny microscopic particles that are the end result of that larger plastic dissolving. So we know that microplastics are everywhere. They're in our food. Um, and they are likely, the species that are out there might well be accumulating microplastics, which unfortunately could then go up the food chain. And that can pretty much be an ocean-wide thing too, right? Because everybody's eating everybody else and they're, they're all moving around. So these sea creatures, they can't really avoid the plastic that's, that's coming from us anymore because there's just so much of it. It's, uh, it's pretty ubiquitous. And one of the questions we're asking now is what we've documented uh, applies to the North Pacific Ocean, the Great Garbage Patch. One of our research questions is, is this happening in other oceans? Is it happening in the South Atlantic or the, the South Pacific? So a lot of research to find out just how, how broad scale this phenomenon now is. I mean, is there any historical uh, precedent for this at all? It, uh, none at all. You know, plastics began entering the ocean in the last 50 years in a big way. There wasn't much plastic. There was plastic before World War II, but only in the 1950s and 1960s did we really start becoming sort of a, a plastic world. And uh, although we knew there was plastic debris out there 50 years ago, not anywhere near the scale of what we're now seeing. And the predictions are not, not positive ones. Um, even though we're trying to reduce that plastic flow, as you mentioned, um, we are just producing an awful lot of plastic, and the U.S. is one of the major plastic producers. Jim Carlton, Professor Emeritus Marine Sciences at uh, Williams College, co-author of the research on the uh, garbage patch ecosystem. Well, there you have it. We live in a plastic world. Mm -hmm. All right. That's in-depth for this week. It's Friday. Yeah. So we'll see you next see, week. we discovered it's December and Friday <laughs> on the same show. We're slowly, like I've always said, we really warm up by about Fridays. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see you Monday at 1 p.m.